This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of posterior labral tear from the shoulder and elbow section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. A posterior labral tear is referred to as a reverse Bankart lesion or attenuation of the posterior capsulolabral complex and commonly occurs due to repetitive microtrauma in athletes. Diagnosis can be made clinically with positive posterior labral provocative tests and confirmed with MRI studies of the shoulder. Treatment may be non-operative or operative depending on the chronicity of symptoms, degree of instability, and patient activity demands. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology of posterior labral tears, athletes that are commonly affected include weightlifters, specifically during bench pressing, football linemen, specifically during blocking, swimmers, gymnasts, and wrestlers. With respect to the pathophysiology, repetitive microtrauma to the posterior capsule labral complex is the most common mechanism. Posteriorly directed force with the arm in a flexed, internally rotated, and adducted position can also lead to a posterior labral tear. Glenoid retroversion is another aspect of the pathophysiology of a posterior labral tear, as patients with increased glenoid retroversion, that is approximately 17 degrees, were six times more likely to experience posterior instability compared to those with less glenoid retroversion, that is approximately 7 degrees. Associated injuries with a posterior labral tear include a Kim lesion, which is an incomplete and sometimes concealed avulsion of the posteroinferior labrum. Again, associated injuries with a posterior labral tear include a Kim lesion, which is an incomplete and sometimes concealed avulsion of the posterior inferior labrum. Now, let's go over some relevant anatomy. As far as the posterior labrum, it helps to generate a cavity compression effect of the glenohumeral joint. It creates 50% of the glenoid socket depth, and it provides posterior stability. The posterior labrum is composed of fibrocartilaginous tissue and anchors the posterior inferior glenohumeral ligament, or PIGHL. For a full review of glenohumeral joint anatomy, please listen to the podcast about glenohumeral joint anatomy, stabilizers, and biomechanics. With respect to the presentation of a posterior labral tear, patients typically exhibit symptoms of vague, nonspecific posterior shoulder pain, which is the most common symptom. This pain typically worsens with provocative activities that apply a posteriorly directed force to the shoulder, for example, pushing heavy doors, bench pressing, and push-ups. Patients may also have clicking or popping in the shoulder with range of motion. They may have a subjective sense of instability, which is less common, and they may also have pain during throwing, specifically in the late cocking phase. On physical exam, patients may have posterior joint line tenderness, and they may have positive provocative tests, specifically a posterior apprehension test, a posterior load and shift test, a jerk test, and a Kim test. In the posterior apprehension test, the arm is positioned with the shoulder forward flexed to 90 degrees and adducted, and to do this test, you will apply anterior support to the scapula and apply a posteriorly directed force to the shoulder through the humerus. The test is positive if the patient experiences a sense of instability or pain. In a posterior load and shift test, the patient rests their arm at their side. You will then grasp the proximal humerus and apply a posteriorly directed force and assess the distance of translation and the patient response. So grade 0 is no translation, grade 1 is to the edge of the glenoid, grade 2 is over the edge of the glenoid but spontaneously relocates, and grade 3 is over the edge of the glenoid and does not spontaneously relocate. In a jerk test, the arm is positioned with the shoulder abducted to 90 degrees and fully internally rotated. You will then axially load the humerus while adducting the arm across the body. 
A clunk indicates subluxation of the humeral head off the posterior glenoid. This is highly sensitive and specific for a posterior labral tear. For a Kim test, the arm will be positioned with the shoulder abducted to 90 degrees and forward flexed to 45 degrees. You will then apply posteriorly and inferiorly directed force to the shoulder through the humerus, and the test is positive if the patient experiences pain. This is highly sensitive and specific for a posterior inferior labral tear. As far as imaging, recommended views on radiographs include a true AP, a scapular Y, and axillary views. An axillary view is required to ensure glenohumeral joint reduction. Keep in mind that posterior shoulder dislocations may be missed on AP radiographs alone. As far as findings on radiographs, they are often normal. However, in chronic cases, the axillary view may show glenoid retroversion or posterior glenoid erosion. An MRI is the diagnostic study of choice, and keep in mind that intraarticular contrast increases the sensitivity for labral pathology. Treatment of posterior labral tears can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes activity modification, NSAIDs, and physical therapy, which is the first line of treatment. As far as the technique of non-operative management, this typically involves rotator cuff and deltoid strengthening, as well as periscapular stabilization. Operative options include a posterior labral repair and capsulorophy. This is indicated where extensive non-operative management fails. As far as the technique, arthroscopic and open techniques may be used. Arthroscopic is preferred to open given the extensive posterior surgical dissection required and is also more reliable with respect to return to play. Suture anchors are used to repair and capsulorophy results in fewer recurrences and revisions than non-anchored repairs. Keep in mind that probing of the posterior labrum is required to rule out a subtle Kim lesion. Outcomes of posterior labral repair and capsulorophy are generally good. Keep in mind, however, that return to previous level of function in overhead throwing athletes is not as reproducible as other athletes. Failure risk increases if adduction and internal rotation are not avoided in the acute postoperative period. Some complications to be aware of include axillary nerve palsy and over-tightening of the posterior capsule. With respect to axillary nerve palsy, the posterior branch of the axillary nerve is at risk during arthroscopic stabilization. This posterior branch travels within 1 millimeter of the inferior shoulder capsule and glenoid rim, and this is at risk during suture passage at the posterior inferior glenoid. Finally, over-tightening of the posterior capsule can lead to anterior subluxation or coracoid impingement. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. A 22-year-old male wrestler presents to your clinic with complaints of deep left shoulder pain for the past six weeks. His pain is aggravated when grappling with other wrestlers and when performing push-ups. He has full passive and active range of motion of the left shoulder that is symmetrical to his contralateral side. He has positive Kim and jerk tests and reproduction of symptoms with the shoulder in forward flexion, adduction, and internal rotation. Which of the listed structures augments the posterior inferior glenohumeral ligament and is a static restraint to posterior translation of the humeral head on the glenoid when the shoulder is forward flexed, adducted, and internally rotated? And the choices are 1. Supraspinatus, 2. Middle glenohumeral ligament, 3. Subscapularis, 4. Superior glenohumeral ligament, and 5. Anterior inferior glenohumeral ligament. The correct answer to this question is 4. Superior glenohumeral ligament. 
So the superior glenohumeral ligament augments the posterior inferior glenohumeral ligament and is a static restraint to posterior translation of the humeral head on the glenoid when the shoulder is forward flexed, adducted, and internally rotated. To quickly review, posterior glenohumeral instability can present in a variety of patient populations and can occur secondary to a traumatic posterior shoulder dislocation or from recurrent posterior subluxations. Symptoms can follow a specific traumatic event that are exacerbated in the, quote, provocative position that is shoulder forward flexion, adduction, and internal rotation. The stability of the shoulder is achieved through both static and dynamic stabilizers. The static stabilizers include the osseous morphology of the glenoid and humeral head, glenoid labrum, capsule, and glenohumeral ligaments. Understanding the respective contributions of each of these structures in relation to the position of the shoulder in space can aid in identifying the exact location of pain and specific injured structure. Bradley et al. review the pathophysiology, diagnosis, and management of posterior shoulder instability. They reviewed the anatomical and biomechanical considerations of the shoulder and posterior instability. They noted that the posterior inferior and superior glenohumeral ligaments function synergistically when the shoulder is forward flexed to 90 degrees, adducted, and internally rotated. Kim et al. performed a cohort study that sought to identify the sensitivity and specificity of the Kim test and the jerk test for posterior inferior labral lesions of the shoulder. The sensitivity of the Kim test was 80% and the specificity was 94%. The sensitivity of the jerk test was 73% and the specificity was 98%. The Kim test was more sensitive in identifying inferior labral tears and the jerk test was more sensitive in identifying posterior labral tears. When the two tests were both positive, there was a sensitivity of 97% for identifying postero-inferior labral tears. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, supraspinatus is incorrect, as the supraspinatus muscle is a dynamic restraint of the shoulder and prevents inferior instability. Answer 2, middle glenohumeral ligament is incorrect, as the middle glenohumeral ligament is a static restraint of the shoulder to anterior and posterior translation with the shoulder at 45 degrees of abduction. Answer 3, subscapularis is incorrect, as the subscapularis muscle is a dynamic restraint of the shoulder to posterior translation when the shoulder is externally rotated. And finally, answer 5, anterior-inferior glenohumeral ligament is incorrect, as the anterior-inferior glenohumeral ligament is a static restraint of the shoulder to anterior translation with the shoulder abducted to 90 degrees and externally rotated. Moving on to the next question. A T2 axial MRI scan of a 21-year-old man who was injured while playing for his college football team is consistent with a posterior labral tear. His pain was aggravated with blocking maneuvers and alleviated with rest, and he had to stop playing because of the pain. What examination maneuver most likely will reproduce his pain? And the choices are 1. Forward elevation in the scapular plane. 2. External rotation and abduction. 3. Flexion, adduction, and internal rotation and four, flexion and abduction. The correct answer to this question is three, flexion, adduction, and internal rotation. So this patient has a mechanism of injury and an MRI consistent with a posterior labral tear and posterior instability. Flexion, adduction, and internal rotation produces a net posterior vector on the glenohumeral joint and should reproduce this patient's symptoms. Pain or instability with the arm elevated in the scapular plane describes an impingement sign. Pain or instability with the arm in external rotation and abduction describes the apprehension sign. Pain or instability with the arm in flexion and abduction is a nonspecific finding. Moving on to the next question. 
A 17-year-old quarterback reports shoulder pain localized over the anterior aspect of the shoulder that occurs during the follow-through phase of throwing. The pain worsens towards the end of the game, but becomes asymptomatic the next day. He denies any pain during the cocking phase of throwing or during normal daily activities. Examination reveals a negative relocation test and a negative posture load and shift test. Motion of the shoulder is normal. An MRI arthrogram shows a small amount of contrast between the posterior labrum and the glenoid, suggesting a posterior labral tear. Based on the history, examination, and MRI findings, what initial treatment should be recommended? And the choices are 1. Labrum repair, 2. Capsular release, 3. Labrum debridement, 4. Physical therapy emphasizing a throwing program, and 5. Physical therapy emphasizing an internal rotation stretching program. The correct answer to this question is 4. Physical therapy emphasizing a throwing program. So again, the MRI scan described shows a small amount of contrast between the posterior labrum and the glenoid, suggesting a posterior labral tear. The patient's symptoms are more consistent, however, with rotator cuff deconditioning because of the timing of his pain during the throwing motion and increased severity at the end of the game. Treatment should focus on reconditioning of the rotator cuff and scapular stabilizers combined with a return-to-throw program. Posterior labral tears are often found on MRI scans of asymptomatic throwers and therefore should not be considered the primary cause of a patient's symptoms unless it's supported by the history and physical examination. Internal rotation contractures can cause a similar pain pattern, but this patient has full and equal range of motion. Moving on to the next question. A 24-year-old man injured his right shoulder several years ago and now reports continued difficulty with the shoulder and has pain with activity. MRI scans reveal a posterior labral tear. He reports that when the injury occurred, he felt that his shoulder popped, but he never required close reduction. He wore a sling for about six weeks and went through several months of physical therapy. Which of the following activities is most likely to cause him pain? And the choices are 1. Reaching back to hit a forehand in tennis. 2. Externally rotating the shoulder to spike a volleyball. 3. Performing a bench press with large amounts of weight. 4. Performing a biceps curl with large amounts of weight. And 5. Throwing a baseball at the point of late cocking slash early acceleration. The correct answer to this question is 3. Performing a bench press with large amounts of weight. So performing a bench press with large amounts of weight is most likely to cause pain for a patient with a posterior labral tear. A patient who sustains a first-time posterior dislocation is less likely to have recurrent dislocations compared with first-time anterior dislocations. Patients often do have problems with loading the shoulder in a forward flex position, such as during a bench press. The other activities listed here might be difficult, but are not as likely to be problematic. A biceps curl might bother a person with a slap tear. The late cocking slash early acceleration phases of throwing, the overhead portion of a tennis serve, and spiking a volleyball places the shoulder in an abduction slash external rotation position, which is likely to be problematic for a person with anterior instability. And moving on to the final question. A 20-year-old college football offensive lineman undergoes arthroscopic right shoulder surgery for a posterior labral tear. Postoperatively, he complains of burning pain in the lateral upper arm. Which of the following nerves was most likely injured during the procedure? And the choices are 1. Radial, 2. Upper subscapular, 3. Lower subscapular, 4. Suprascapular, 
and 5 axillary. The correct answer to this question is 5 axillary. So the posterior branch of the axillary nerve travels within 1 millimeter of the inferior capsule of the glenohumeral joint and can be injured with suture passing devices during posterior inferior labral repairs. The superior lateral brachial cutaneous nerve and the nerve to the teres minor always arise from the posterior branch. Injury can lead to teres minor weakness on external rotation and sensory symptoms in the lateral arm. Ball et al. traced the course of the axillary nerve in cadaveric shoulders and noted that the posterior branch of the axillary nerve has an intimate association with the inferior aspects of the glenoid which may place it at particular risk during capsular plication or thermal shrinkage procedures. Esmail et al. used intraoperative nerve monitoring to identify axillary nerve position, capsule thickness, and provide real-time identification of impending nerve injury and function during shoulder thermal capsulography. The use of intraoperative nerve monitoring altered the heat application technique in 4 of 11 patients and may have prevented nerve injury. That's all for this review about posterior labral tear. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.